Chapter Eleven of the Milky Way. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Milky Way by F. Tennyson Jesse. Chapter Eleven, where the bus went. On the temple platform, I ran into Peter, who was alighting from the next carriage. "Steady, old girl," he said, gripping me firmly by the elbow. "For the Lord's sake, don't cry." "I, I'm not crying." Oh, Peter, I thought, I thought. Then you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Oh, Viv, you are an utter little goose. He picked up my bag as he spoke, and then I noticed that he was already carrying a bundle. Peter, you haven't left Haggett's. And it's all through me. I shall never forgive myself, never. Haggett's, said Peter cheerfully was not so bright and beautiful that it broke my heart to leave. By the way, what a brown study you were in, not to see me get into that tram. Hullo, this gentleman in uniform very kindly wishes to relieve us of our tickets. Give him yours. And now, as we emerged into the cold riverside air, where are we going? I don't know, I replied. I haven't thought about it. What I was thinking was that he had called me Viv for the first time, and I laughed a little as I realized he didn't know that he had. When in doubt, take a bus, observed Peter. The only question is, what bus shall we take? A nice reliable bus, not a skittish young thing that will coquette with a lamp-post. You observe that buses carry their ages legibly marked upon their persons. I'm glad we don't. Fancy when we got to thirty. We won't take a very young bus, like four or five, because it couldn't reasonably be expected to know where it was going. We'll choose a staid old thing somewhere in the sixties. Mightn't it be suffering from senile decay? asked Peter anxiously. So it might. We'll choose the divine middle age. We finally settled on a bus that had attained the age of forty-something, according to the big white label that decked its front. We handed the conductor a shilling, saying, Two as far as you go, and pocketed the change without counting it, because Peter said the only way to travel was to trust to Providence and a uniform. We forgot to look at the tickets and find out where we were going, so to this day the destination of that bus remains a mystery, and I only know that it was somewhere on the Surrey side of the river. Dusk had fallen when we alighted, and we wandered down grey little streets with growing disgust at our surroundings. "'That bus has played us false,' announced Peter. "'I see no card advertising apartments for a single woman, which is what I want to find you. You will be reduced to a temperance hotel, and wire blinds are so depressing.' "'Temperance hotel?' This doesn't look to me the kind of locality for a temperance anything. Let's try this street. It looks quiet. It was. It consisted of shuttered warehouses, and was cut off in its prime by the river. Peter and I looked for a few moments at the stretch of gleaming mud between us and the brown-gray of the sluggish tide, then turned to retrace our steps. As we did so, a half-open door with a notice on it caught my eye. Waxworks, a penny, I read aloud. Do let's go in. 
We pushed open the door and found ourselves in a narrow passage, made narrower still by a kitchen table and chair. Evidently this was the receipt of custom, and the receiver had gone to his supper. Laughing at the adventure and pretending we were going to meet bogies round the corner, we started to mount the stairs. They were frail as matchwood, and in places had given way utterly, while it was long since the banisters had seen better days. A dim, strange-smelling house it was, the pallid wallpaper hanging in clammy strips from the blotched walls, and it was with quite an exciting flutter of the heart that I led the way into the first room. A large bed stood at the far corner, and in it lay a waxen woman, propped by pillows, her waist held by a smug-looking man in a blue serge suit and fair wig, who stood beside her. At the foot of the bed smirked two more waxen ladies, who displayed a lively interest in the proceedings. A label round the neck of the man of the party announced that he was James Bates, the Canningtown poisoner, and that the women were his three wives, to whom he had administered strychnine. I clutched Peter's arm. It was all so gruesome in that darkening house. Shall we not go any further? asked Peter. I must know the worst. Lead on, I declared, peering over Peter's arm in mock terror as we advanced into the next room, which had a barricade some three feet high across it. Unsuspectingly we looked over that barrier, and sick to the soul, I staggered against Peter in good earnest, burying my face on his shoulder. There had been, a short time before, a crime known as the Turnham Green Murder. A man had bought a grocery business from a young married couple, and to escape payment had murdered them and their baby, and buried the corpses in the garden. In the back room of this riverside house, the scene of the disinterment was portrayed with revolting accuracy. There, among fragments of sacking and piled earth, showed the upturned waxen faces in which decay had been horribly imitated. There, scattered in different places, were the limbs of the child. It's all right, Viv. It's only wax figures, you know. Damn the brutes and their foul imaginations. Buck up, old girl. Pull yourself together. Take me away, Peter. Take me away. We'll go this minute, he assured me, drawing me to the door. The dark had come swiftly, and the stairs disappeared into impenetrable darkness. Peter shut the door of that dreadful room behind us. Listen to me, Viv, he said. The stairs aren't safe and you must wait here while I go on and open the front door to make more light. Peter, I can't be left alone here. Peter! I don't see what else to do, Viv. I set my teeth hard. Just as you think best, Peter. But, oh, don't be long. I'll be as quick as I can, and I'll talk to you all the time, he promised, beginning his cautious descent. Every time a stair creaked, my heart leapt in terror. But he attained the ground floor in safety, and I heard him tumble over the table. Then came a frantic rattling of the door handle. 
What's the matter? I called. The proprietor's been and gone and locked the door, shouted Peter with forced cheerfulness. We shall have to yell. Going into the room on the ground floor, he beat heavily on the shuttered windows, and the blows re-echoed through the empty house. Peter! peter -er! Come back! I can't bear it! I cried. Right-o! We must lean out of the upstairs windows. These are all boarded up. So were all the front room windows, only in the back rooms, looking over the muddy waste of the ebbing Thames, could we open the casements. I don't know how long we shouted, turn and turn about. It seemed hours. We might as well have been in a desert. If any people did hear our cries, they were evidently of that class which leaves ill alone. The moon was shining wanly into the room when we looked at each other with our hopelessness confessed in our gaze. Let's eat the sandwiches, said I. As he swallowed the last crumb, Peter squared his shoulders. Things might be worse, he announced. At least there's a bed for you. Do you imagine I could sleep in that awful bed? I cried. Why not? Don't be silly and fanciful. I'll turn the wax lady out, and you just be thankful to the gods for giving you a nice warm bed with a pillow and a counterpane on it. Peter was as good as his word, and pulling the wax lady ruthlessly out of bed, he bundled her and her fellows into the chamber of horrors and shut the door on them. There, he said cheerfully, there'll be company for each other. He shook up the pillows as he spoke. If you imagine, said I, that I'm going to have the bed and the pillows and the counterpane, you're very much mistaken. You jolly well take one pillow and the counterpane, or I won't go to bed at all. Rot, said Peter. I mean what I say. Those are my terms take em or leave em. But I am dead tired and longing to go to bed, and unless you'll agree to my terms, I can't. So it'll really be very selfish of you if you refuse. We had a healthy quarrel, but I won, and Peter retired to his little room, the only other empty back room, with the quilt and one pillow, while I disposed myself with my coat over me and thought how fortunate and appropriate it was that it should be a blanket coat. Then I lay quietly, but with damp brow and clenched fists, striving to keep myself in hand. I had always thought that I was afraid of nothing except black beetles. Now I discovered that, though real danger stirs the blood and is the most gloriously exhilarating thing on earth, unreal danger almost frightens the soul out of one. I discovered, too, that, next to jealousy, fear is the worst thing in the world. Was that the noise of a slow, heavy footfall from that ghastly room? Or was it merely the thumping of my own heart sounding in my ears? The rats scurried over the ceiling and through the walls, dislodging little showers of plaster as they went. But them I did not mind. Rats were, so to speak, human. 
one rat ran out into a square of moonlight on the floor and sat up busily cleaning its soft face and round naked ears but when i made a slight movement it shot across the shadowy floor like a trout through a pool presently i fell into a troubled sleep from which i awakened suddenly with every pulse in my body beating like an electric hammer for a few moments i lay quite still not daring even to turn my head on the pillow it may sound ridiculous in cold daylight but i was enveloped by a suffocating sense of something evil i have never felt anything like it since i don't think men and women still in the flesh and subject to the kindly impulses of human nature could give off such an atmosphere of undiluted wickedness i received the impression how far the thing was possible i leave to psychologists that all the evil that had produced the crimes commemorated in that house was concentrated there without any of the human attributes that at other times the criminals must have had i had never given much thought to evil knocking about the world as i had done i had naturally been struck by the kindliness and innate rightness of the people in it and being i suppose an unmoral person myself who just did things because i felt like doing them good and bad was a point of view that had never occurred to me one just tried to play the game which i suppose consists in keeping a stiff upper lip oneself and not letting other people down and thought no more about it but now in this terrible riverside house the very air seemed so malignant that i could hardly breathe it suddenly a sound as of a foot shuffled softly forward came from the other end of the room i suppose the door moved in the draught and i let fly one piercing scream peter was with me in an instant and i flung myself at him sobbing wildly he sat on the edge of the bed holding me and presently my terror became articulate peter they are there by the door the people you shut in the other room peter i can't bear it don't leave me hush viv do hush dear there's no one there really nothing shall hurt you would you rather come into my room yes yes anywhere oh peter take me away he picked me up and carried me into his little room and when i was quieter he fetched the rest of the pillows and arranged them against the wall i settled down on them and he sat beside me holding my hand until i fell into a dreamless sleep the pallor of a london dawn was in the room when i awoke feeling stiff and cramped peter fast asleep lay along the boards one arm outflung while his head had slipped on to my lap i sat and looked at him in the wan light smoothing the fair tumbled locks away from his forehead he seemed such a boy asleep there was something absolutely childlike about the curve of his thin cheek and the sweep of his lashes which i always told him were wickedly long for a mere man he stirred a little as though troubled in his sleep and bending over him 
I saw wet drops were glistening on those absurd lashes, and I caught a few muttered words. Viv, said Peter. Viv, oh darling, don't. Don't, Viv, my darling. As I raised my startled head I felt a scorching blush mount in my face, and I sat very still. There seemed something almost dishonourable in having heard that unconscious avowal from one who, when awake, hid so well what he now laid bare. I felt as though I had listened at a keyhole to what I was not meant to hear. The very innermost Peter had spoken. It was a revealing of naked soul to soul. And startled, abashed, mine drew back. He had called to me from his dreams, and it should be only a dream, Viv, who heard him. Affection, trust, protection, loyalty, all those I could give him. The gifts of a good she-comrade, who is a being half-mother and half-man-friend. But more than that I felt it was not in me to give. I stayed as quiet as possible to let him have his sleep out. The dawn light flowed into the room like water, and not until the grey pallor of it had given way to a bleak yellow did Peter wake. When he opened his eyes he first stared blankly, then with recognition, and I was able to meet his look as calmly as though I had been the unknowing Viv of the day before. He sat up as quickly as his cramped limbs would allow him. Good heavens, I couldn't think where I was. Viv, I've been pillowing my horrid heavy head on you. Why didn't you kick me off? You must be all stiff. Not a bit. I'm only just awake myself, I lied. Oh, Peter, what a horrible, horrible night it's been. He laid his hand lightly on my skirt where it was still warm from his head, then looked at me with a sudden smile. Well, I don't know that I altogether agree with you, princess, he said. End of chapter 11